discover the inherent power of God in you. Whether there are challenges or not, we are still the same. We are constant. God is constant. God does not change. And that is the life that we have received. He says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is the same life we have also received. We are also the same yesterday, today, and forever. What kind of life? We, we, we are the same because we have the same life with Christ. So when you think about God, think about you. Because everything he is, that is why he told Abraham, he said, I am your, your exceeding great reward. God gave himself as a reward to Abraham. And we are the seed of Abraham. Therefore, we have inherited God himself. Listen to Pastor Oti Boateng as Christ is magnified in you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You are welcome to our Sunday morning service once again. Um, you are welcome to this wonderful service, question and answer service. And I know that we are going to be blessed. We've had a number of questions coming in. You can still keep sending in your questions and we'll answer them for you. Because we have this Sunday and then Wednesday to answer questions. So if, you have, if there's any question on your heart, as I'm sharing with you and answering some of the questions that we have here, you can send in your questions. If there's more time, we'll answer it today. If not, we'll answer it on Wednesday for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So the very first question we have here is, uh, can a believer lose his, his or her salvation? This is from Kofi from East Legon. Can a believer lose his or her salvation? I want us to share with a prayer and it will start. Okay, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your precious Holy Spirit who is here with us, guiding us and teaching us. Thank you that your word proceeds with power and every single question receives an answer, a glorious answer to your glory and to your praise. Thank you for the ministry of your word and the ministry of your spirit that are working today in our lives. Thank you for fruitfulness for everyone of us, even in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So, Kofi says, can a believer lose his or her salvation? The answer is no and yes. <laughs> it's yes and no. You know, if you look at uh, the book of John, John chapter 10, I want to share and explain a few things there for you. Um, let's read from verse 25, John chapter 10 from verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do, I do in my Father's name. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Verse 26. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand i and my father are one hallelujah i think these scriptures make it very clear that when he gives you eternal life he says you will never lose it go back to verse 28 he says and i give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand now the word never there is a double negative word meaning that he let, i think the amplifier will help us let's just read the amplifier it's and i give them eternal life and they shall never lose it or perish throughout the ages to all eternity they shall never by any means be destroyed 
and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Hallelujah. They shall never by any means be destroyed. They shall never lose it or never perish throughout the ages. So you are not going to lose your salvation. It's impossible for a Christian to lose his salvation. In other words, the devil can't do anything for you to lose your salvation. Neither can you do anything for you to lose your salvation. Hallelujah. However, what I just said is with... um, um, uh, How do I even say it? It's with... Let's say doing something that's something unintentional. You see, let's say you you fail, you know, to a temptation or something. There's nothing that you can be tempted with for you to lose eternal life. It's not possible. That's basically what I'm trying to say. The devil can't tempt you with anything that will lead you to lose your eternal life. It's not possible. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never lose it. Never in any age. They shall never lose it. That's the truth. Okay? But in Hebrews chapter 6, we are, we are showed some scriptures there in Hebrews chapter 6. That shows you the other side of when a believer decides himself to lose his salvation. Okay? If you decide yourself that I don't like the salvation thing. There's one in Hebrews chapter 10 and there's one in Hebrews chapter 4. If you decide that I don't like this thing anymore. I don't like Jesus. I don't like the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in the blood of Jesus. I don't think all this all this is real. Okay? Voluntarily, you deciding, a Christian deciding that I don't want this anymore, then nobody can force it on you. Then you lose it. That is the only circumstance around which a believer can lose his salvation. But uh, there's no temptation, like I said, there's no temptation from the devil. There's no sin that is strong enough to take salvation away from you or take eternal life out of your spirit. There's none. There are other things that those things come with. And I've shared some with you in the past few weeks, you know, concerning not inheriting the kingdom of God and all of those things. That one is separate. But as for being in the kingdom of God and being with the Lord and being in heaven and you, you know, being with God, it's settled. There's nothing that can take that away from you. Hallelujah. I don't know if you remember what I just read to you. In John chapter 10, verse 28, look at 28, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never lose it. This is the amplified. Or perish throughout the ages. They shall never lose it. Or perish throughout the ages. To all eternity, they shall never by any means be destroyed. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. So, I mean, I think this is so clear. It's so clear that Jesus Christ didn't mince words when he was saying this. He meant exactly what he was saying. Okay, so there's nothing. No man, he says, no man is able to plug them out of my hand. No man is able to plug them out of my father's hand. No man. Not the devil, nobody. Hallelujah. So let's look at the one in Hebrews. Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read Hebrews 10 from 25. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a man of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as he see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remained no more sacrifice for sins. Next verse. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fear indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Next verse. He that despised Moses' Lord died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall be thought worthy, who has trodden under foot the Son of God? 
and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the spirit of grace. Hallelujah. I don't know if you're catching this one too. So he says, if we sin willfully, and he shows you what sin he's talking about. He mentions if we sin willfully in verse 26. Okay, look at verse 26. He says, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. The word knowledge of the truth there, the word knowledge is epignosis. That is full, complete, concise knowledge. Coming to a full, complete, concise knowledge of who Christ is, of who Jesus is, of who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, walking with the Lord to the highest level, to the highest level of maturity, okay, that can be found in Christ. He says, if you get there and you sin willfully, what sin is that? Jump to verse 29. He says, of how much sorrow punishment suppose it shall be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. So this is a, this is the sin that he's talking about. Trodden underfoot the Son of God. Let's read the Amplified probably to help us. How much worse, sterner, and heavier punishment do you suppose he will be judged to deserve who has spanned and thus trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has considered the covenant blood by which he was consecrated common and unhallowed, thus profaning it and insulting and outraging the Holy Spirit who imparts grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God. So this is what he's talking about. You know, trampling the Son of God underfoot, saying that Jesus is nothing. Who is he? After you've come to the full knowledge of the truth, then you say that Jesus is nothing. The blood of Jesus is foolish. It's stupid. It's nothing. Do you see? That's what he's talking about. Go back to the King James. Of how much sorrow punishment, verse 29, suppose you shall be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. The one talking was sanctified by that blood, an unholy thing. You are now calling it an unholy thing and has done despite unto the spirit of grace. There's something wrong. Okay? He says that there's no more sacrifice for sins for such a person. Go to verse 27. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fair indignation which shall devour their adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy and at two or three witnesses. Go to uh, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remained no more sacrifice for sins. There remained no more sacrifice for sins. Okay, and this is a believer who has come to the full knowledge of God, full maturity of God, and has decided that he doesn't want to be a Christian. So unless you decide you don't want to be a Christian, as a matured believer, you will never lose your salvation, no matter what. You will never lose your, the life of God that God puts into you. You will never lose it. There's nothing that can take you away from, from him. There's no temptation that the devil can bring to you that will make you lose your salvation. There's nothing like that. Hallelujah. Now go to Hebrews chapter 6. You see some more there. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's read from verse 4. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now, take notice of all the things that he's going to mention. Okay, He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. I don't know if you're seeing this. Go back to verse 4. Let me 
Let me explain it one by one for you. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. So the first thing is that they were once enlightened. What does it mean to be enlightened? It means to have revelation concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John chapter 3, that except the man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, this is John 3, 3. It says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except unto him, very, very, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, he cannot have enlightenment concerning the kingdom of God. So that's what he's talking about, the born again experience with respect to what is written in Hebrews chapter, chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened, that's what he's talking about, and have tasted of the heavenly gifts. Okay, there are various heavenly gifts that are given to us in salvation. The first one is eternal life. The second one is... Uh, is the Holy Spirit. The third one is, uh, they call it the three cardinal gifts. Okay? Eternal life, the Holy Spirit, and then what else? Righteousness. Righteousness is given to you as well. These are all heavenly gifts that are given to you. So he says, in the new birth, you get all these things. So he's talking about someone who has been enlightened, who has gotten to see the kingdom of God, and has received the heavenly gifts, which includes the Holy Spirit, eternal life, righteousness. Then he says, and we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. That means that they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. They've received the Holy Spirit, okay, and are fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. They've come into that fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Next verse, verse 5. And have tasted the good word of God. The good word of God is the highest form of the word. There are various levels of the, the word of God. There's the milk of the word. There's the meat of the word. There's a strong meat of the word. Then there's the good word of God, which is the honey of God's word. That is the highest form of God's word. Hallelujah. So he's talking about people who have gone through the system have become very matured. Matured in the kingdom of God. Okay? Matured in the kingdom of God. It says, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. They have knowledge concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit is the powers of the world to come. The gift of, you know, word of knowledge. Knowing something about somebody. Word of wisdom. Knowing something about someone's future and all of those things. The past, the present, the future. Okay? Having access. You know, in heaven, you, you wouldn't have to um, have word of knowledge to be able to see what's going on or what has gone on in someone's life. No. We all have access to each other. Our heads become transparent. Everything about us becomes your thoughts are head in heaven. But on earth, it's not like that. You need the power of the world to come to be able to tell what's going on in someone's life. And God has given that gift to, to all of us. And he says, this guy is someone who has come to full maturity and has come to full access of these gifts and is privy to them and is using them. Next verse, verse, uh, verse 6 now, Hebrews 6, 6. He says, if that person should fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shape. It is impossible to renew this person again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves Again, the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So he's talking about someone, it's the same thing he said in Hebrews chapter 10. Someone coming to full maturity and then turning back to say that the blood of Christ is nothing. It's nothing. Jesus is nobody. He doesn't believe in this Jesus thing. It's a difficult place to come to. But people do come there with time. Okay? People do get to that level. But it's not supposed to be like that. That is not God's destiny for you. God's destiny is that because you are saved now, you are saved. Once saved, forever saved is true. That's the truth. But then, if you get to this point, 
as a Christian get to full maturity and then decide that Christ is nothing, you will most certainly lose your decision. It's impossible to renew such a person. Hallelujah. I don't know if I've answered your question. I think I have. Okay, so that's it. That's it. But this is for fully mature. I'm not sure you've gotten to that. This is called the unpardonable sin. Okay? This is the unpardonable sin. When you call the work of the Holy Spirit as nothing, the work of God in Christ as nothing, that is the unpardonable sin. And your pardonable sin is committed by matured sons of God who have decided that they don't like it anymore. For whatever reason, I have no idea. Hallelujah. Okay, so there's another question here. He says, hello, pastor. I'm Alex from Nungua. This is my question. Why does the Bible say God is jealous? Why would God be jealous? Why would God be jealous? Does he lack anything to be jealous of another? Why does God in the Bible say thou shalt not kill, and yet he orders the Jews to go and kill other, other people just to take their property? Then he says, hope it is not too much. <laughs> Alex from Nungu, it is not too much at all. Hallelujah. Why does the Bible say God is jealous? So two questions in one. Why would God be jealous? Does he lack anything to be jealous of another? That's the first part. Now, the word that is used for jealous when it comes to God, um, let's look at Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. That particular statement is one of the Ten Commandments. Um, the very first one, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, let's read from Exodus chapter 20. Let's read from verse 1. And God speak all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Wow. So God is not jealous of us. Okay? God is not a jealous God of us. He's not jealous of anybody. There's nothing that anybody has that he's jealous of. Or he's envious of. The, the word jealousy means to be envious of somebody and uh, what he has. Okay? You can be jealous of someone's wife. You have your someone, this is someone's wife, but then you want that person's wife. Uh -huh. You are jealous of the person's wife. You want to take what the person has. God is God. There's nothing like you said in your question. What does God need that He needs to be, He has to be jealous of us or somebody of? He's not jealous of us. God never said He's jealous of us. There's no place in the Bible or the Bible where it said that God is jealous of us. No, God is not jealous of us. There's nothing that we have that God wants, but God is jealous for us. For our attention. If you notice, he's talking about you giving your attention to other gods. Making graven images of heavenly things, of earthly things, and all of that. And bowing down to them. He says, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Okay? 
if there's anybody to serve, it is I, not any other thing. You should not have any false gods in your life. You should not be, God is idolatry completely. Hallelujah. So he's, he's jealous for us. He's jealous for our attention. You know, and the word jealous used for, in this particular verse, in verse 5, okay, is kana, Q-A-N-N-A. And it is, it is only used for God. The ones used for man is kina, Q-I-N-N-A. Which is different from this one. So this is exclusive. This is an exclusive word um, that has to do with God. It's called godly jealousy. It's not the jealousy of mankind. It's not. Okay? God wants our attention. He says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. He wants your attention, all of your attention, not some of your attention. Hallelujah. So he's not jealous of material, of any material thing of your wife or any. No, that's not it. He's jealous for you, not of you. He's jealous for you. He wants all of your attention. He wants all of you. That's what he means when we say God is a jealous God. Hallelujah. So in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, you will see Paul also mentioning something similar. Paul says, For I am jealous, jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, or deceived Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So Paul said, I'm jealous over you, not jealous of you. Go back to verse, verse 2. For I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy. There's something called godly jealousy. He wanted them to give their, all their attention to God. That's what he was talking about. He was so um, full of passion, you know, for them to give their attention to God so that the devil does not take the attention of God. And that's, that's not bad. Is that bad? I don't think that's bad at all. That is not bad at all. That is completely different from the jealousy that a man can have for another man over his wife, over his property, over so many things that would drive him to kill, to do all kinds of things in order to get what the other person has. God is not into that. Hallelujah. I don't know if I've answered that for you. So God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God for us, for attention, for our hearts, for everything for all of us, for all of our attention to be stayed on him. Hallelujah. There's nothing wrong with that. Then you mentioned also that you continue by saying, why does God in the Bible say thou shalt not kill and yet he orders the Jews to go and kill others, other people, just to take their property? Just to take their property. Well, um, God is not um, just God Father to us. God is also the judge of this universe. Okay? He created everything. And he's a judge of everyone. That is why in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, the Bible says that he will sit down and he shall judge all of humanity. Okay? And I saw the dead small and great. Let's read from verse 11 to make more sense. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another was open, and which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. Then he goes on and on and on and on. God is the judge of the universe. And uh, because he's the judge of the universe, if someone does something wrong, the person must be punished. I don't know if you have a judge in your country. You have judges in your country who, whose job it is to punish wrong, okay, and to exonerate wrongly accused people, declare guilty and not guilty, given power and authority by the, the government, by the state, to do their work. Just so that our country, the country in which we live, or whichever country in which you find yourself, will be rid of, uh, of bad people and have people doing the right thing. I don't know if you like a society where people get to do the right thing, or you prefer a society where everybody gets to do whatever he or she wants to do and goes on rampage. Someone can enter your house, shoot your wife, rape your two daughters, and take all your property and leave you there without being punished, you see. And then another person goes to a, a shop, a grocery store, kills everybody there, takes as much food as he wants, and goes away with all the cameras looking at him, and the police doesn't do anything about it. The judges don't do anything about it. He run, he's just free, moving around, looking for his next target. Is that right? That is not right. If you, if you think that is not right, then you should know that God will also not sit to look on for things to just happen. God is a righteous judge. The foundation of his throne is righteousness and judgment. Okay? Righteousness and judgment. So God is a just judge. And he's a judge of the universe. And he must punish what he's supposed to punish. And help what he's supposed to help. Hallelujah. So, what you said concerning... Um, God sending Israel to go and kill people and taking their property is actually not so. Okay, let me show you some things in the scriptures. Okay, so let's read from Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. Um, let me read from verse 7. Let's read from verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad. This is a story concerning Abraham and, and God. So God is the one doing this right now to Abraham. He says, and God brought forth him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord. Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of of the Chaldeans, Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it. And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a, sh and a she goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the best divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, an horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now, this is a story concerning the covenant that God made with Abraham. God had so many covenants with him to, to um, assure him of uh, what he was saying to him, okay? Apart from the covenant of circumcision, God had another kind of covenant with Abraham altogether. And during those times, um, for a covenant to be 
to be ratified or to be concluded, there needed to be the shedding of blood. So in those times, you could have people cutting their, their hands and putting it, you know, I'll, if I'm doing a covenant with you, I cut my palm, drip it into wine, and then you also cut your palm, drip the blood into wine, and then we, I drink it, and then you also drink it. There needed to be a shedding of blood or a passing through of blood, okay? So what God did with Abraham was that he told him, Abraham was asking, how would I know that this land is going to be mine? And God told him, I'm going to, you know, strike a covenant with you. So he told him to get some animals, divide them into two for the blood to flow, keep them on either side for the, so that the blood will flow into the middle. Okay? And then he made him pass through. And that's what it was something they used to do during those times. You will pass through it. You stand at one, one side, I'll stand at the other side, and then we'll both pass through the blood of the animals and exchange positions. What it means is that now all that I own is yours and all that you own is mine. So that's what God was doing with Abraham here, just to cut a covenant with him for him to know of a surety that what he had promised he was going to do, he was going to fulfill. Hallelujah. So after that had happened, Abraham slept. And this is what happened when Abraham slept. Verse, um, verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And lo, an horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. You know this happened, right? This is, uh, he was talking about Israel's slavery in, um, in, in Egypt. Okay? Then verse 14 says, And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great substance. This is what happened. They came out with so much money, so much jewelry, gold, and all of that. Then verse 15 says, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Have you seen it? This is what I want you to say. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Wow. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoke, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those two pieces. So God also went through the pieces himself. Abraham was not the only one who went through them. God also went through them as well to ratify the covenant with, with Abraham. But God told Abraham something. He says, your seed, that's Israel, will go into Egypt for 400 years. They shall be kept in slavery there and all of that. I shall judge that nation that shall enslave them. They shall come out of that nation. And then they shall come back to this place that I say I'm giving to you. Why would they come back? He says, when they come back, they shall come here again. Then he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Who are the Amorites? The Amorites were the inhabitants of that land. Okay, the land of Canaan was inhabited by so many different groups. And the Amorites was one of them. Okay? With almost all the tribes that were in Canaan were doing their own thing. They were fooling around, doing all kinds of things. But God is a merciful God. So he wanted them to um, repent. God always sends people to tell anyone or any group to change. All the time. He doesn't leave even one group without being helped. Okay? Now, if, you, if, if you've read your Bible very carefully, you will know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Just three chapters after this particular chapter in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 18, we see God doing something. God came down onto earth 
and met Abraham and told Abraham that he was on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah to go and check if the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah had come to it was true. The cry of its iniquity was true. This is Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. And the men arose from the hands and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. Next verse. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. Can you imagine that God came down to come and check if Sodom's sin that had come up to him as a cry, if their sins and their iniquity that had come up to him as a cry was actually true? Can't he tell if it is true up there? He can. But because of his mercy, he came down to come and come and check of a certainty whether it was true before he meets out judgment. Judgment must be meted out for sin, for wrong. As for that one, there's not, I think I explained that with the natural, even our natural laws. You know, naturally speaking, we don't allow people to just move around and do whatever they want to do. We put them, we incarcerate them, we put them in maximum security prisons so that they can stay there and be happy there and not be part of society. They will say that this person is not fit to be a member of society. Why? Because he did A, B, C, D. He's a serial killer. He has killed 70 women. Yeah, there are many wild people who have done wild things throughout history who society decided that through judges that they didn't need to stay alive anymore. So they took their lives on their own. They judged them to have uh, the maximum sentence, which is death. Okay? If human beings do that, how much more God? So God has to rid the earth of sin, of wrong, because he's the owner of the earth. He made it. But if, there's, if there are some people in there who are doing something that is wrong, and he gives them time to change, and they don't change, he must meet out judgment to them. So in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see a similar thing there. He came down to come and check. And even that one, he allowed Abraham to pray to him, to talk to him about Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham started bargaining for the life of Sodom and Gomorrah. He started bargaining at 50. God, if you go and you find 50 people who are righteous, Will you destroy it? God said, I will certainly not destroy it. Why would I destroy it? For 50 righteous people. If there are 50 righteous people there, there's hope for, the count, there's hope for that count, those two countries. Then Abraham brought it to 45. He realized that maybe God will not find 45. Then he brought it to 30. And down 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 and down. All the way to 10. Can you imagine? That's verse 32. And Abraham said, he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak yet but this once. Peradventure, ten shall be found there. Peradventure, ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Abraham felt that at least ten people should be righteous in the whole of Sodom and Gomorrah. At least ten people. But God didn't meet ten. They were not even up to five. It was Lot, his wife, and two daughters. They were not even up to five. Lot had more than two daughters. He had many children, but they decided not to go with him. They said, Sodom and Gomorrah is nice. They like it. They'll stay there. Yeah. They were into all kinds of things. Homosexuality. Homosexuality didn't start today. It started a long time ago. Sodom and Gomorrah was, was full of it. They wanted to have sex with the angels who came to. Read it for yourself. You see it. So God came and saw. He sent angels there to come and check. And they checked and realized that not even five righteous people are in this place. They had to take out the country, take out the whole place. And they took all of them out. 
They took all of them out. Why is God not destroying the earth right now? Because it's because of Christians. You and I, we are the ones who have been praying for people. Because we are the righteous ones who are here. That's why when we are taken out, then destruction can come to the world. It's just like that it happens. Various places have been destroyed for their iniquity. Pompeii, for instance, is the most recent of them. Pompey was rife with all kinds of things. I mean, idolatry, immorality, all, I mean, sin abounded. And God allowed the a volcanic eruption to destroy them. It happens. Okay? So, when it comes to the children of Israel, God used the children of Israel as his instrument of judgment in the earth at that time. Okay? Go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 from verse 1. Says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisted the power, resisted the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he buried not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Have you seen it? He says that the governments that we have in our various countries are actually ordained by God. They are from God. And they are God's instrument of justice, of judgment. If you do good, you receive praise of them. If you do that which is wrong, you receive your just recompense of reward. We should, we should read the message, right? Okay, let's read from, from verse 1, message version from verse 1. Be a good citizen. All governments are under God. In so far as there is peace and order, is God's order. So live responsibly as a citizen. If you are irresponsible to the state, then you are irresponsible with God. And God will hold you responsible. <laughs> Duly constituted authorities are only a threat if you are trying to get by with something. Decent citizens should have nothing to fear. Do you want to be on good terms with the government? Be a responsible citizen and you will get on just fine. The government working to your advantage. But if you are breaking the rules right and left, watch out. The police aren't there just to be admired in their uniforms. God also has an interest in keeping order. And he uses them to do it. Have you seen it? He uses them to do it. So God has always had instruments in the earth to do his judgment, to do his bidding. Just as we have government, now he's using the governments of nations to do it, with the police force and the army and all of those things to do it. There's more order now through because we have constituted governments, legally constituted governments. Presidents are voted into power, appointed into power and all of that to execute the will of God upon evildoers. But at that time, God instituted Israel as his police force on earth and as his government on earth to execute his judgment on the earth. So God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, that's why I read that to you in Genesis chapter 15, that he would take his children to Egypt for some time for them to grow there. Then you bring them out. When he brings them out, they will come and come and meet judgment upon all of the land of Canaan because the land of Canaan's judgment, their, their sin had not yet come to its full, its fullness. There's, there's a cup for sin. <laughs> Everybody has one. All of society has one. When it is full, God meets our judgment. 
When it is not full, God doesn't do anything. He leaves them be. But when it becomes full, he pours out judgment upon them. And it's found everywhere in the scriptures. There are so many places I can, I can show you in the scriptures. Okay, so God used Israel as his instrument of judgment. So God will give instructions to Israel through their kings or through their judges at different times to go out and destroy a whole country because that whole country was judged as unrighteous by God because of their massive sin that comes up to him. In Sodom and Gomorrah, he meted out the judgment himself with fire. But in the land of Canaan, he was meeting out judgment to the inhabitants of Canaan through Israel. That was why God sent Israel to do the things that they did to meet our judgment to them. Hallelujah. When their cup became full, God sent Israel to be their judge. So in um, Exodus, let's read something in Exodus. Exodus chapter 17. I wish we could read the whole chapter, but just because of time. Let's read from verse 8. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Okay, so Amalek came to come and fight Israel. Israel had just come out of Egypt. Amalek was the first country to attack them, to take them out from the system. I mean, it's just like moving on your own. You know, you are walking on your street. And then someone just comes to you on the road and attacks you with clubs and points a gun at you, trying to shoot you. To take your bag from you. What are you going to do? Are you going to defend yourself? You defend yourself. If you have a gun, what would you do? You retaliate. You do something. Because you are not at fault. You've not done anything wrong. You are just trying to defend yourself. So, Israel was walking on the streets just like that. And Amalek decided to attack Israel and take all of its property. And Israel had to fight Amalek. And Israel won. Now, when Israel won the battle, um, go to verse 15. Let's read from verse 13 to be nice. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this one for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will truly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay? So they destroyed Amalek. But then God said that I'm going to take Amalek out completely. Because how can you be so wicked? These are my people. Who, why do you attack? It's like attacking the police force. Attacking a policeman and killing a policeman. Why do you do that? If someone kills a policeman, the person is in trouble. You are in big trouble. Do you see? So Amalek got into big trouble with God because they were attacking God's police in the earth at that time. And God said, you guys are in trouble. So in First Samuel chapter 15 from verse 1, he says, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. That says the Lord of hosts. I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. This is after so many years. <laughs> How he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling and ox and sheep, camel and ass. Have you seen it? Why did God give this instruction? Because of what they did at that time. Do you see? 
they attacked the police and they God wanted all of them out. And Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. So God got angry with Saul for not being a police, a proper policeman. So he took him out as well. Hallelujah. So God is not a killer. He's a judge. And uh, I don't think the judges that pronounce um, a death sentence on people who do wrong, serious wrong, are killers. Are they killers? They are not seen as killers because they are not. They are judges. They are correct from God. And what the judgment they meet out is unquestionable. Nobody will come and say that, oh, this person is my father. Yes, I know he killed 70 people. But can't you see that he's my father? What are you talking about? He has to be dealt with. And if you assisted him in any way, he must be dealt with as well. If you assisted him in any way, in any form, you are an accomplice and you must also be judged. So God is a judge. Okay? That's how he's been all this while, even to date. He's still doing that. He still does that. He's a judge. He's a judge of the universe. And these days, governments are used to keep countries in check and to keep other countries that rise up to destroy other countries. For instance, when Hitler rose up and destroyed Poland in five days and killed five million Jews and did all kinds of things, other people had to rise up. Other countries had to rise up and say, what you're doing is wrong and you must be put in your place. So they got to Germany killed so many Germans because they were, they were, in, they were, they were, they were in, in consent. They were with, with him. Most Germans were with him. You see, not all Germans. Most Germans were with him. They had allied forces. Japan was with him. Italy was with him. They destroyed France. I mean, it was not a small thing. So millions of people had to die. 60 million people died in the Second World War at the hands of, of, uh, of, of Hitler. There was a battle that happened between Germany and Russia that had about 5 million people dying in one week. Yes, 5 million people dying in one week. It was not a small thing. So, um, judgment is meted out at various times by God when the cup of nations, of individuals, of things come to a fall. It brings this instrument of judgment. And Israel happened to be an instrument of judgment that God was using. At that time. I hope I've answered you. Great. Hallelujah. This one says, I want to know if generational curses, family curses, or personal curses can still affect or have a hold on a Christian. I want to know if generational curses, you didn't send your name. I think it's from Kingsford. Uh, it says, I want to know if generational curses, family curses, or personal curses can still affect or have a hold on a Christian. Wow. Well, for generational cases and their family cases, when you become born again, you are taken away from your family. If you read in John, book of John, John chapter 1. Let's read from verse 11. John 1, 11. He says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hallelujah. So immediately you become born again, you are taken from your family, and you are put into the family of God, literally. Okay? 
He says, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him to them, he gave the power. Let's read it again uh, from verse 11. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power or the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So immediately you believe on his name, you become a child of God, a son, his daughter. Then he says, children who are not born, that's verse 13, which were born not of blood. So you need to be born of blood to be part of your family, your father's family. You need to be born of blood to be part of your grandfather's family. You are linked to your grandfather because of your blood, because of your genes, because of all of that. But he says that when you become born again, you are no more born of blood. You are now born of his will. So go back to that place in verse 13. He says, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Meaning that it's not your father or your mother who sat down to say that we want to have a child and then they brought you forth. No. In God's eyes, it's a different story altogether. You are now a child of God. You belong to him. You belong to him. Meaning that nothing in your blood affects you anymore. And nothing that your grandfather did or your great-grandfather did or your great-great-great-great-grandfather did can affect you. If your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did something wrong and he was cursed, that all of his generations are cursed, minus you because you are no more part of that generation. You are now part of the household of God. Let me show you some more. Go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read from verse 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Then he says, and of the household of God. The word household means family. Let's read, let's read another version. This is the amplifier. It says, therefore you are no longer outsiders, exiles, migrants, and aliens excluded from the rights of citizens, but you now share citizenship with the saints, God's own people, consecrated and set apart for himself. And you belong to God's own household. You belong to God's own household or God's own family. You are now a family member of God's family. Hallelujah. I don't know what the message you say. Let's see what the message you say. That's plain enough. Isn't it? You are no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You are no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. Hallelujah. God is building a home. He's using us all in respect of how we got here in what he is building. We are all part of his family. Go to Galatians 6, verse 10. Look at Galatians 6, 10. He says, As we have therefore opportunity let us do good unto all men especially unto them who are of the household of faith have you seen it those of the household of faith we belong to the household of faith we belong to the family of faith so you missed all cases all cases as soon as you got born again now go to colossians chapter 2 let's read from verse 9 colossians 2 from verse 9 i know it will help us oh hallelujah he says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Hallelujah. I'm complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Verse, verse 11. 
Then it says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made with our hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is beautiful. Verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. Verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out, that's verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, go to verse 14. Let's read other versions of verse 14. You will see what I'm talking about. Having cancelled and blotted out and wiped away the handwriting of the note bond with this legal decrease and demands which was in force and stood against us, hostile to us, this note with its regulations, decrees and demands, he set aside and cleared completely out of our way by nailing it to his cross. You know, in other words, he's talking about the curses of the law or the curse of the law, which is all curse inclusive. <laughs> He says he took it out of the way and nailed that ordinance. All that was said, all that was written against us in any way, in any form, through our family, through our personal cases, whatever it is, whatever personal case it is that you had before you go born again, has been nailed to the cross. And it is no more a problem at all. Hallelujah. Then in Galatians chapter 3, let's read from verse 12. Galatians 3. From verse 12, he says, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Then verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Hallelujah. Curse is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us, taking us from the curse of the law, which includes every other curse you can think about. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone that hangs on a tree. So as he hung on the tree, he took the curse of all of humanity upon himself. Generational curses are not to affect you. At all. Because you are a child of God. There's nothing your grandfather did that can affect you now that you are born again. Because you are not of that family. You are now of the family of God. All that affects you is what is in Christ. Not what is in your family. You must get this right. Don't go for prayers for generational curses. Breaking of generational curses. I don't know why people still talk about those things. Because it's non-existent. You are not born of blood. What happened to your father and destroyed your father's life is not going to happen to you and destroy your life. If your father was a womanizer, you are not going to be a womanizer. Don't say it's a, it's a curse in our family. Which family are you talking about? Which one do you belong to? Do you belong to your natural family or you belong to the family of God? I've showed you how you belong to the family of God. Okay, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Let's read from verse 14. Probably you understand even some more. Ephesians 3 from verse 14. It says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and in earth is named. There's a family in heaven and there's a family on earth. We are part of the family that is on earth. And there are those who are in heaven. When we finish, when we leave this earth, we join the family in heaven. It's one family. There's some in heaven, there's some in earth. It's called the family of God. So you don't belong to your natural family. You don't belong to them anymore. You are now a child of God in reality. In reality. And what is in Christ is what affects you because you are now in Christ. Your environment, your new environment is Christ. Your new family is Christ. And only blessings are found there. There is no curse. If you think that 
the curses in your family are following you. They will forever follow you. You need a mental renovation. You need mental deliverance. Nobody needs to pray for you. You don't need prayer. You need mental deliverance. That's, there's something wrong with your mind. There's something going on in your mind that, you need, that needs to be changed. You need to start thinking right. Because nothing, there's nothing. There's nothing your father did, your mother did, your grandfather did. None of those things can happen, can affect you. There's no blood sickness, blood disease that, that is in your family that can even affect you. If your family is noted for diabetes, is noted for hypertension, minus you because you are not born again. If you appropriate God's word for yourself and the reality of God's word for yourself, that's what you have. There's no sickness, hazard of hell, that is in your family that can touch you. Because you believe that you're a child of God and you know who you are. That's what it means when we say, you, I know who I am. You know of a reality that this is who I am. I'm a child of God. That settles it. No curse from my family can affect me. There's nothing. And there are so many people who have um, been the last stop for some of these curses that are in certain families because they got to know who they were in Christ. So many. There are countless people. I know so many people who knew, who got to know who they were in Christ and had all the things that were happening in their families stop and cease with them. You know, there are families that have a curse that nobody goes beyond 50. Yes, there are families like that in Ghana, in other Nigeria, in other places. Everybody dies 48, 49. Nobody goes 50. Even in America, there are curses, people who are cursed, families are cursed like that because someone did something somewhere. Do you see? But then there are people who got born again in such families and have lived past 70 and have broken that. Even their children who are not born again don't have that. Can you imagine? Because one person decided that this thing has to end, and it ended with him in Christ, and that was it. All of his seed are different. There are families where nobody gets married. They have children, but they don't, they don't, they don't get married. All the ladies who have children, you can have five kids, six kids, but no husbands. If you check the family, there are no husbands. Minus you, sister. Minus you, because you are now a child of God. You are in the family of God. And the family of God is goodness and mercy and sweetness throughout. So don't be afraid. All the curses has been nailed to the cross. He's taking all the ordinances that were spoken and written against us and nailed it to the cross. We now belong to his family. We are in his family now. We are members, bona fide members of the family that is in heaven and that is in earth. So we are different. Say to yourself, I'm different. No curse from my family, from my generations can happen to me. And right now that you're born again, you cannot be cursed. You are the blessed of God. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us? Hmm? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Where we sit in heavenly places, cannot be, we cannot be cursed there. It's not possible. We are now seated in heavenly places together in Christ. And we are in the place of blessings. We are the blessed of God. We are the blessed of God. We are the seed of Abraham. And because we are the seed of Abraham, we are the blessed of God. And no curse, nobody can curse you. That's why he says, bless and curse not. Matthew chapter 5. Go to Matthew chapter 5. So Matthew 5 from verse 44. He says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. This is Jesus talking. He says, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Have you seen it? Yeah. It says, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, 
Why? Because you cannot be cursed. It's not possible for you to be cursed. So as they are cursing, you just bless them. It's not possible for you to be cursed now. You cannot, nobody can curse a child of God. It's not possible. You cannot curse a child of God ever. No matter what, you can't curse a child of God. Well, there are some people who curse children of God, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, is, it doesn't work like that. There are men of God who curse the children of God. It doesn't work. <laughs> no matter who you are, you can't curse a child of God. No matter what. Hallelujah. Go to Romans chapter 12, verse, verse 14. He says, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Are we saying Bless and curse not. Why? Because you cannot be cursed. Don't, you can't be cursed. Nobody can curse you. It's not possible. No matter what happened, no matter what you did, you cannot be cursed. That's the truth. No matter what you did, whatever you did, seek, confess your sin to the Lord. He forgive you. And repudiate any curse that was spoken over you, over your life. And you'll be fine. Hallelujah. Yeah, so you cannot be cursed. Okay? You are the blessed of God. I hope that I hope I hope I've answered your question. Hallelujah. All right, let's see if we can do two more questions before we bring today's service to an end. This one says, Why do we worship on Sunday? This is from um, Michael from Tema Community Five. He says, Why do we worship on Sunday but not the Sabbath day, which is Saturday? Then he mentions a scripture, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23 says, And it will be that from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will come to give worship before me, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Why do we worship on Sunday, but not the Sabbath that is on Saturday? So you've agreed that the Sabbath is on Saturday. That's true. The Sabbath is Saturday. Okay. Sunday is the very first day of the week. Saturday is the last day of the week. And Saturday is the Sabbath that God blessed and rested on. That is true. You are right. But how come... So Jews um, worship on Saturdays, on the Sabbath day. Okay? That is the law. That is the old covenant. Hallelujah. But in the new covenant, everything is new, even including the day we worship. Why do we worship on Sundays? Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. And in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come. See the place where the Lord lay. Hallelujah. <laughs> then he says, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. So Jesus rose from the dead on the very first day of the week, which is Sunday. He rose on Sunday dawn. That is why we meet on Sundays. 
Because our Lord rose from the dead on a Sunday morning, beginning the new covenant, the new testament. The new testament began on a Sunday morning. That is why we meet on a Sunday morning. And it is not because we decided to meet on a Sunday morning. It was something that started with the disciples. They started meeting on the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath days, to differentiate between the old covenant and the new, as instructed by the Lord. So I want to show you some scriptures along that line. Hallelujah. So let's read from John chapter 20. Um, Let's read from verse 19. Okay, let's read from verse 18 so that we, we understand even some more. Mary Madeline came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Now, this is the same day, the very first day of the week that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. Okay? Then, uh, verse 19 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Hallelujah. Then he gave them instructions and all of that. So he showed himself to them on the very first of the day, which was on Sunday morning. Okay, this is Sunday evening. In the morning, he showed himself to Mary Madeline. Then he, during the day, there were two disciples who were on their way to Emmaus. He showed himself to them. Then he showed himself to all of the disciples on, in the evening. So that became the day that the disciples started meeting. So if you read in the book of Acts, you will see some, some of these things there. Acts chapter, chapter 20. Let's read from verse 7. Acts 20 from verse 7. Let me read from verse 5. It, I think it will be good from verse 5. These going before tired for us at Troas, and we sailed from Philippi after the days of unliving bread, and came unto them to Troas, in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, have you seen it? They came together to break bread on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday morning. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and con- that was on the Monday, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. So he preached throughout the day, which was something that was done on the Sabbath days. That's on a Saturday. Sabbath is Saturday. That's for that one. There's no, there's no competition about it. It's the truth. But the disciples started meeting on the very first day of the week because that was a day, that was a resurrection day, the resurrection morning. And uh, that began the new covenant. And if we are in the new covenant, then that's what we do as well. Hallelujah. So, we meet on Sunday mornings because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. And the disciples started meeting on Sunday mornings. And hence, we also meet on Sunday mornings. If you look at uh, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let's read from verse 1. Now, concerning the collection of, for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galicia... Even so do ye. Verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. How is it? So they were meeting the very first day of the week. He says, gather. Put monies together whenever you come together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that's it. They met on the first day of the week because that was the resurrection morning. And that is why we meet on Sundays. Yes, Sabbath Day is Saturday. That's the truth, like I said earlier. But Sunday is the day that they started meeting, and so we also meet on Sundays. Okay? 
Saturday belongs to the old covenant. Sunday belongs to the new covenant. If you are in the new, you should be with the new. All things must be new. Hallelujah. Understand what I'm saying? Okay? All right. So let's, let's see this last question and then we'll be out of here for today. And on Wednesday, I'll have a panel and then we'll discuss it in some more. I think the panel discussions are better. It makes us answer more questions um, within a very short period. So this one says, um, hello, pastor. How do you find your calling? There comes a time when you get prophecies and many others about the things you will achieve in the future. But when none of them truly resonates with you, how do you truly discover who you are and the potential you carry? Hallelujah. How do you find your calling? How do you find your calling? Now, we know that everybody has been called, right? So how do you find a calling? First of all, there's a general one. I told you about it. There's a general one, isn't it? We are all called as ministers of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter 5, from verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Next verse. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So we, we notice that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation with the word of reconciliation. Okay? So we ha- you have a ministry. All of us have a ministry. We all have a calling of reconciling others. And... Uh, as you start getting yourself involved, as you start busying yourself with that, okay, as you locate that particular ministry and start fulfilling it, with time, you will see that you are getting, you are evolving into what God wants you to be. That's what happens. Okay? It becomes a natural progression of your life. As you go, you notice that you, you, you won't call yourself a prophet. Others will call you a prophet because you will not, others will notice a prophetic grace upon your life. Hallelujah. They will notice it. Nobody will have to. You know, Philip was not called an evangelist because um, he called himself an evangelist. No. He was fulfilling the ministry of reconciling others to God in Acts chapter 8. And as he did that, he became an evangelist because he was preaching from place to place. And the Holy Spirit was carrying him from place to place. Before long, he was called. If you read the book of Acts, you see it. He was given that name. He was called Philip the Evangelist. Yet at the beginning, he was just appointed to take care of some things in the house of God. If you read in Acts chapter 6, you see the first appointment of Philip. Let's read Acts chapter 6. Let's read from verse 5. I think you see it. Okay, let's read from verse, from verse uh, 2 so that we can understand it very well. Then the talk called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. What business? The business of what? Putting things, seven tables. You see, they were putting things in order, seven tables. It was just, it was just a dining hall prefect in the, in the house of God. And he was appointed so because he was a man of good report. Honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and all of that. So they appointed them to take care of something in the house of God. It wasn't their calling. That is, I mean, taking care of food in the house of God is not a calling, but it is part of the ministry. 
So he did it anyways. Okay? So if you go to verse 5. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. So they chose all of them. And the Bible says, because they chose them, okay, go to verse 6. Whom they said before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So, their appointment brought increase to the house of God. That is the most important thing. Whatever you are doing must bring increase to the house of God, and you should be busy yourself about that. First of all, do something in the house of God, and what you're doing should contribute to the success, the success of the whole church, the whole group that you're in. Do your best. Make it go forward. That is the first thing you need to concern yourself about. Now, as you're doing that, you evolve gradually into who God wants you to be. So in Acts chapter 8 from verse 4, look at Acts 8 from verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Everybody was preaching the word. Everybody, because of the, the persecution that arose about the death of Stephen, everybody went out and everybody was preaching. They couldn't stay in Jerusalem. And Philip was one of them. He had to also get out of Jerusalem. Next verse, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Next verse. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip speak, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So he went to preach. And things were happening. Miracles were happening all over the place. His serving in the house of God had moved him to start preaching. Because of the various things that were happening, he was preaching, he was fulfilling his ministry of reconciliation. Then in Acts chapter 21, let's read from verse 7. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Have you seen it? And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Wow. He had four daughters who were virgins, who were prophets. They were into prophesying. Now, Philip didn't call himself an evangelist. He was called an evangelist by Luke in this particular verse of the Bible. He says, And the next day, we that were of Paul's company, this verse 8, departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, the appointed seven earlier, and abode with him. Hallelujah. So with time, he became, it was seen that clearly this guy is an evangelist. He's clearly an evangelist. So that's how you find your calling. I don't know if I've answered you. <laughs> Just start from your ministry of reconciliation. Do something in the house of God. With time, the Holy Spirit himself will help you. You will evolve gradually into what God has called you to be. It will come naturally. You wouldn't have to struggle with it. You just gradually move into whatever it is that God will have you become in this house. Okay? For instance, in, in our church, we have a, a natural progression for um, training our, our church members to become pastors and all of that. It's a natural progression. We give you a ministry. We offer for the ministry of reconciliation. As you are busy yourself with the ministry of reconciliation, we appoint you. You are appointed as a pastor. Okay, you are appointed. You, first of all, you are appointed as an uh, uh, as a, as a leader. Then you can become an elder, depending on how much you fulfill that ministry that God has given to you with respect to the ministry of reconciliation. We are just exploring the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we do. 
Okay? The more you fulfill it, the more you rise up the ladder. With good attitude, of course. If your attitude is bad, you can't rise. No matter how much you fulfill the ministry of reconciliation, if your attitude and your character is not good, you are not going to rise as you're supposed to. So with good character, with recommendation from, from others who are watching your life and helping train you, you are recommended through the system. And then you grow to become, you develop to become a pastor in our church. Not a pastor for somebody else. You become a pastor to take care of. The pastoral ministry is the, is the, is the first of the ministries, if you like. Okay? It's the easiest one you can appoint, we can appoint people into, to become an overseer, to look after people. That's why Paul said, if a man desires the office of a bishop, which is an overseer, he desires a good job. You can desire that to oversee others. But we cannot appoint you as a prophet. We've never appointed anybody as a prophet in our church. Do you see? Because that is a calling, is the, is the calling of God. And it's a, it's a natural, it's a progression you get into with time. Over a period, God develops you to becoming a, an apostle, a prophet, a teacher, something. As the years go by. You can't push yourself into it. It's a calling. God calls you into it. Okay? But the natural, there's a natural progression for overseership, for pastoring. Is there. Even out of that, there's a the pastoral ministry. So someone can become, go through the natural progression and become a pastor, be appointed as a pastor. But you notice that he's unable to increase as he's supposed to in that pastoral uh, appointment that he has. Okay? But then there are some who grow to become real pastors. They are ordained as pastors, picked, handpicked by God himself. They're able to pastor so many people, thousands and thousands of people. Whilst those they may have been appointed into pastoral office together with may be pastoring two people or five people. Not any fault of theirs. That is not their calling. Maybe they have been called to be a prophet or something which they have not yet found out. Hallelujah. So the more you stay with God and pray and fellowship with the Spirit, the more those giftings of God that has been placed in you start showing up. And normally the gifts of the gifts come together to form a prophetic ministry. Some also come together to form an apostolic ministry. Some also come together to form a teaching ministry. Some also come together to form a healing ministry, depending on what you have been called to do. All of us are called to heal. All of, all of us are called to teach. All of us are called to prophesy. All of us are called to be evangelists. It's the truth. But then there are some who are given as gifts by God, not by men. So in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, it says, And God gave gifts unto men. So you are given as a gift to the body of Christ. Or you are given as a gift to a group of people as time goes on. It becomes clear. Paul said, am I not an apostle? If I'm not to others, I am to you, certainly. Because God sent me to you. Hallelujah. So that's how it works. Okay? That's how it works. So there's that natural progression. And you must be in a place where you can progress naturally like that. So that you can grow and develop as you're supposed to. To becoming an elder, a pastor, something, an overseer. Who is presenting some people? You need to present some people, whether you're you're a prophet or an evangelist. No matter what, you need to present some people. And there's a natural progression that God puts in place for that, for that purpose. Hallelujah. Yeah. And that's that's what happened with Philip. He was appointed to become to do something in the house of God, and then he grew as time went on. So that's that's how you know your calling. And if what some prophets are saying is not commensurating with what you know you are supposed to be, they see in part. The Bible says that we see in part, we prophesy in part. Okay, so maybe they are not seeing what God has told them to do. They are seeing other aspects of it. Don't be bothered about it. Don't worry about what you are. Don't worry about, don't be into, I'm a, I'm a prophet. I'm this. It's not important. Win souls. 
raise people. That's the most important thing. With time, if you're supposed to be um, a prophet or an evangelist or an, or an apostle, you will be as time goes on. You don't have to worry yourself at all. And an apostle is a sent one. I sent some people to Accra to go and start churches there. By sending them, they became apostles to Accra. If I send you to buy bread, you're an apostle of bread. <laughs> I send them to go to Accra, they became apostles to Accra. I send them to UK, they became apostles to UK. With respect to our system, do you see? Uh-huh. So, but then there's an apostolic ministry that comes with so many, you do so many things. Paul was an apostle. He said, I labored abundantly more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. There's, there's an apostolic grace from God that comes upon people to do various things. So an apostle starts things. He starts churches. You see, he starts various um, organizations that help for the gospel to move on. And when he starts, it works. He doesn't start and after five years, it's not there anymore. No, when he starts, it's 100 years, it's still there. So John Wesley was an apostle. What he started is still there up to date. There are so many, George Whitefield, all these wonderful people, apostles of God who started things that have lasted for years and years and years. The things that the 12 apostles started are the things we are still doing today. We were sent to start something and it has worked to date. But that's the apostolic ministry. It it's, um, founds things, it starts things that stay forever. Hallelujah. Yeah, and there are wonderful apostles in our, in our system in, in this world at this time who are doing great things. It's amazing. So, with desire, you grow. Ask the more you fellowship with God. You see, God will not give you the opportunity to bless his children when he knows you're going to take advantage of them. If God knows you're going to take advantage of them when he makes you something, then you're going to have trouble. He sees, so, he's not going to bring you to that level. As a pastor, you're not supposed to lord it over God's children. That's not right. They are God's heritage. Always remember that. So you can't take advantage of the ladies in the church. You can't take advantage of the gentlemen in the church. You can't take advantage of the children in the church. They are not yours. They are for God. And if God knows that you will take advantage of God's people, he will never put you in certain places. Never. Love God's children. Do what he wants you to do with them. And you watch yourself progressing all the time in whatever it says that God has called you to be. Also, there are people who occupy all the fivefold ministry, including the ministry of healing and all of that. It's actually, it's, it's actually for all of us. All of them are for all of us. We have to develop into them as time goes on. So if you look at someone like uh, Paul, you can't describe Paul as a pastor because he was, he was a pastor. He was pastoring churches. He was an apostle. He started so many churches, started so many things that have worked to date. He was a prophet, certainly a prophet. He was a teacher. If he wasn't a teacher, he wouldn't have had all these things that we had from him. He was an evangelist. You see. So all the fivefold is there. If you look at someone like Pastor Chris, Bishop Dag, you can't tell what they are. They've grown over time. They start out as teachers of the word. Bishop Dag is certainly a teacher. Look at the books that have come out of his life. 60, over 60 books. Try it and see. It doesn't work like that. You can't, you can't just write document things. Who will even buy them? Who will read them? Yeah, but he's, there are more than 30 million books in circulation. So many books. Do you see? So he's a teacher. He's a pastor of pastors. He's an apostle. He started so many things that have worked. Bible school has worked for more than 20 years. Someone has started one. It doesn't work for one year. It's collapsed. You see, he's, he was sent to the way he did it. It worked. 
Um, what again? He's a prophet of God. So many people, he's prophesied, says so many, even his examples are dangerous. He realized that when he uses somebody as an example, it becomes the person's life. Amazingly. So he started becoming careful with making examples, with making examples with people. He's a prophet. He's an evangelist. And healing Jesus campaign is not a small thing. He has a whole set for the southern, Af- for the southern part of Africa, another whole set for the western part of Africa and the eastern part of Africa. It's amazing. Just his ministry as an evangelist is someone's whole life's ministry as, as an evangelist. So he is an evangelist. If you pick someone like Bishop Oedipo, I mean, we can't start talking. You'll be surprised. So many beautiful things about these wonderful people. And it comes by um, being faithful at what God gives to you at that time that you find yourself at this time right now. What do you, are you faithful with what God has given to you? Do what God has told you to do now. Some of these people started off as ashes, as drummers. Bishop Doug was a drummer and a keyboardist for Archbishop Nick. You know, he's grown, cycled out of things over the years. If you're faithful little, you're faithful much. God will promote you as time goes on. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I know you've been blessed. I know you've learned something today. On Wednesday, you're going to call. There are so many questions here. But on Wednesday, you're going to continue. And I know that you're going to be blessed as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lift up your hands wherever you are. Thank God for his goodness, for his grace, for his kindness, for the love he has shown towards you, for this answers to these questions and clarifying these things in your mind for you. Thank you, Father, for being a blessing to us. We are grateful. We are thankful. Thank you that this week is glorious for us all, even in Jesus' mighty name. And thank you that your word works in us this week. Your precious Holy Spirit is working in us this week, causing us to see good throughout this week in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for joy unspeakable that is full of glory, even in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you for listening. We pray that the word of God will be rooted and grounded in your heart as you give attention to the word. Kindly follow Pastor T and Love Economy Church on all social networks for more of God's word. Don't forget to subscribe to the Pastor T podcast. Simply search for Pastor T on any podcast app, plug in and enjoy God's word. Visit our website at loveeconomychurch.org for more information. God bless.